Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Endurance Asia podcast. I'm your host Scott Pugh and Rick and I today are joined by Andy Van Bergen. Andy is the one of the founding members of Hells 500, a cycling collective down in Melbourne, a group of mad men and women who come up with, uh, with crazy challenges. And Andy is the, the creator, the curator of the Everesting Challenge, the cycling or, or, uh, or by any means, whether it be foot up, up and down um, to the accumulative height of Everest. And he has been managing and, and uh, auditing all of the efforts that have been submitted over the past seven of years onto the everesting.cc website. Um, and it's really good to get Andy on just to really to hear about the genesis of the of the challenge that has kind of taken the world by storm. It's been uh, especially in this past year where uh, there's been a lack of races going on and uh, people are trying to find challenges to keep themselves focused and fit. Um, and so it's really, really taken a lot off along with the, the FKTs. So with that, here is Andy Van Bergen. Tell the truthful story if they ever rask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Andy Van Bergen, welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast. Very good to see you, sir. Thank you so much for uh, having me along. Fan of the show uh, and some great episodes. I'm really stoked to be on here. Wow, there's been a sort of running theme since we started a couple of years ago and in, in, uh, in, in lots of um, people that we've had on the podcast have, uh, have, have done Everesting. It's been, yeah, we've, we've talked a lot about it. We've, uh, we've got had, I mean, Mike Baird, who's like the very first person to do Everest Man as well. So it's been a real running theme of the show. So I was, um, yeah, Rick and I were really pleased to be able to, to get you come on and uh, and to talk about the kind of genesis of uh, of how it came about and um and your story as well. So, so yeah, with that, Andy, like, how long has it been going on for? It's kind of like got a cult kind of following that started in the cycle community, but um, but yeah, I'm really interested to hear what the uh what the genesis of it was. Yeah, thanks. So. Well, it, and it has. It's like 2020 has been a little bit of a crazy year for us for, for Everesting. Um, but I guess it's, it's one of those things that uh, with all of these stories, it's to, to pinch a, uh, to, to use a bit of a cliche, it's one of those seven or eight year overnight successes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, you're right. Like it's sort of, it, it grew, I'll, I'll take you through the story in a moment, but um, you know, from, from 2014 when the first, uh, you know, the, the big Everesting, um, you know, events were launched um, through to today, it was always, it was always really like quite a, a cultish, um, almost underground sort of thing. And, and given the enormity of the task, we're talking about climbing the equivalent height of Mount Everest in your own backyard, climbing repeats until, until we hit that height. It's, um, it, it's, it's pretty tough, obviously. So it's always going to be a bit of a limiter to the amount of people that, that can participate. So, you know, I promise you, Scott, like back in the day when, when we first launched and we had 30 people in one weekend go and do this, at the time I had a friend who said, one of these days, Andy, you know, you guys are Hell's 500, 
I guarantee there's going to be 500 people that will do an Everesting. And I was like, not in your life. At 500 people, it's an insane number, like as, as if there'd ever be that many. And, yeah, fast forward to, to this year and, you know, we've got uh, there's over 14,500 uh, people. 14,500 globally. How many different yeah, countries? Uh, 98 different countries. Well, 99 if you include Zwift. So, uh, yeah, okay. 98, 98 different countries around the world have been Everested, which is really, really exciting. Obviously, it's, it's pretty rare that a new one pops up, but when it does, and invariably it does every few months, I get pretty excited because, uh, yeah, there's some, there's some interesting places that this, is, this has popped up. We can talk about that later as yeah. well, of course. Yeah, so going back, you, you said like 70, seven years ago, so it was around, um, yeah, around uh, 2014 that, it's, um, that was the first yeah, one. Yeah, that's... That's right. So 2014 was when we launched the concept. And I guess to, um, to, to understand where the launch came from, we need to kind of rewind a little bit further than that as well. So I've always been inspired by endurance events of, of any kind. I was a trail runner, not a, not a great one, but I, I did really enjoy it. And I, I sort of cut my teeth on Oxfam 100K walks and runs uh, over the space of, of a couple of years. And I just, I, I was always inspired by this idea of pushing yourself further than than you know than what you're otherwise capable of usually and i love that idea of finding the limits of you know your own endurance and, and your own capacity um always really inspired by that and, and kind of pushing always pushing yourself to to go a little bit harder and I, i'd sort of with with my uncle and one of my cousins the three of us had sort of fallen into cycling a little bit and i'm talking like more than a dozen years ago um we'd sort of we'd done the circuit of all the all of all the fondos in Melbourne, where where I'm where I'm uh, living, so I've done all the fondos, all the all the big rides and everything that you could, and there were some big big moment, you know monumental ones there. But we sort of we'd come around again to the next year and the next year, and we end up ending up just doing these same events that we'd already completed before, and it sort of took a little bit of the shine off it uh, for us. So we thought, well, why don't we just create our own little event or a little challenge just with with the three of us and really it was for no other reason than for us to call each other out of bed in you know the dark heart of winter because we all know that oh, well you're in singapore so you don't know about this but the rest of the world has this thing called winter it's really <laughs> cold. Um, but um like get training in winter is horrible like it's it's cold and it's wet and it's dark and the idea of like swinging a leg over a bike is really really difficult so we'd sort of We'd, we'd come up with our own event, um, just the three of us we were going to be riding it, and we'd set ourselves a target. And the whole idea would be it had to be something big and you know monumental that you couldn't just go and do the next weekend. You know, you really needed to train for it. And we'd call each other out of bed every every weekend and go and hit the hills and um, you know do do big rides to kind of train and prepare for whatever these events were. So. You know, for example, um, we'd heard about this. There was this uh, group of seven peaks. Uh, it was called the Seven Peaks Challenge, which existed in Victoria in Australia. And they took the seven ski resorts, which all roughly have about a 1,000 metres climbing each, some a bit more, some a bit less, but they're all pretty legit climbs. And so they were, they were challenging you to go and complete all seven of those peaks over the space of the summer, um, you know, over the space of the summer season. And so, you know, we went around and did that and drove to each of these places and, you know, it's 800 kilometres of driving and over the, space of, over the space of the summer, we'd eventually tick them all off and we're quite happy with that. And, but it got us thinking, like, 
Well, if we could do all of those in the summer, like how could, could you do all of them if we were to drive to each of them? And so my uncle and I set out, the two of us, we didn't have any support crew. We'd drive to the, the base of each climb and we sort of mapped out a, a route and go and ride it and then drive to the next one and go and ride it and drive to the next one. And uh, there were some really hot climbs in there, but we ended up completing it. It was, it was about 50 hours later and we knocked off all of the seven peaks in one, you know, one, one kind of condensed activity. We slept in there a little bit as well, but yeah, it the sounds like a, pretty rough. a similar format to the three peak challenge in the UK, which I don't know if you've heard of, but like the three, like uh, uh, Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowdon, and you drive between each, you hike up them each. Yeah. That is a perfect, perfect example. Although geographically these climbs are a little bit further spread apart. So the, um, I think from memory, it was like seven or 800 kilometers driving that we needed to do in amongst all of this uh, challenge as well. And uh, of course, the first year it was just the two of us. So we'd, we'd be buckled by the time we come, came back to the car, quickly rehydrate, drive to the next one and, and off we'd go. So, but, uh, you know, we did it in 50 hours, which was the fastest known time at, at that time. And I think, you know, we took days off the, uh, off the record at that stage. But as, as it happens, you know, with, with any endurance athlete, you're thinking, oh, well, there's ways we could have definitely sped that up a little bit. We could have made some efficiencies. We really poured over the maps to decide the best, the best uh, driving routes and everything like that. And so the following year after training, we went out and smashed the seven peaks again. But this time we did it in under 36 hours. And uh, it was, like I said, you know, half of that challenge was just the logistics of getting around to each of them. But we had a support crew this time. And even through torrential rain and everything, we, we managed to, uh, yeah, to, to take the record. And we're really proud. It was a record that stood for, I don't know, quite a few years. Uh, and then we're equally stoked, as, as anyone is in, in sort of endurance sports, when your record gets taken. That's amazing because everyone wants kind of the sport to progress further and, it was sort of almost a little bit embarrassing that it had stayed a record for as long as it did, which was, I mean, it's kind of good, but you, you want to see things progress a little bit. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was fun, like hearing, hearing how these guys beat it. But so we do, do these sorts of challenges every year and, and each year we'd pick something a little bit different and a little bit harder. And it was just, just a small group of us. And of course, some of the other riders that we would cross paths with were sort of interested in what we were doing and they'd come along the following year and it, it, there was one year where we, we'd always ridden this particular loop in, in, the, uh, in the high country of Victoria called the Three Peaks. And the new road had been put in or a paved road, which meant that you could link Mount Hotham, Falls Creek uh, and, and Toowoomba Gap. And it would make this 235-kilometre loop with about 4,500 metres of climbing. It was a pretty, pretty big, big loop. And so we'd gone and ridden that a few times and, then we heard that uh, an event company here in Melbourne had decided to put an event on on that same loop that we did, and they were billing it as the toughest ride that you could imagine. Well, hang on a minute, we we just went and did that ourselves on support. It's a training you know, run, it's, yeah. It's fine. Um, so, sort of as a little bit of a way to stick it up them, we uh, we decided to ride it, but then turn around and ride the whole thing in reverse. Um, and I've got a little bit of a OCD around uh, around round numbers. So it was it was close to ten thousand meters, and it was close to five hundred kilometers. So we threw in another climb, uh, which made it five hundred kilometers and ten thousand vertical meters. And we thought it'd be neat if we did that in less than thirty six hours. Have a sleep, of course. Um, 
And each of our little challenges that we, we ran every year, we'd give a name. So that one I, I called Hell's 500 because I figured, well, it's 500 kilometres, we're likely to be going through hell. And, yeah, so we, we went and did it. I, just, I think there was four or five of us who, who did that Hell's 500 challenge. And at the time, you know, you kind of have to rewind to whenever it was, like it was probably 2010, 2011, something like that. The... Um, it was just a different scene, you know, like um, unfortunately massive days on the bike now are just so normalised by the ultra community and by ultra racing. And I think Everesting's had a bit of a part to play in that as well. So if you see a, a ride with 10,000 metres elevation gain in it now, you kind of go, oh, that's cool. But unfortunately it just doesn't quite have the same impact that it did, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, outside um, of the elites, ago, obviously, and outside of the Tour de France, et cetera, yeah. Even there, like the, the reality is like, you know, on some of the big, and I'm not for a second comparing our rides to the Tour de France, but even the biggest days in the Tour might be four or five, you know, less, less yeah. than 5,000 metres. So it was um, it was something that w- when we did it at the time received extensive coverage and uh, and it just so happened that whenever we would, would go and do these new rides, people would come up to us and say, oh, this is, you know, Andy and John, and, you know, those Hells 500 guys because people had heard of this Hells 500 ride. And, yeah, the name, the name sort of stuck for us. And it's kind of after that year that we just started to get a lot more people that were really interested. So, again, we did a couple of big epic rides, and I won't go into all of them, but things like um, up, in, up in the Dandenong Ranges, which is about... 20 or 30 k's east of melbourne sort of the, the first big mountain yeah um, i've ridden them there's actually some beautiful running trails around there as well but i've ridden is, is one of the climbs called the wall there or something is that one of yeah, the yeah yeah so, so a popular training route would be to take the wall as well as the one in 20 which is another really iconic riding climb there uh, another one which is called the devil's elbow sounds a bit you know you know notorious uh, as well as Inverness which is a really steep climb and, and it roughly forms a crucifix if you look at it on a map and it's it's about 2,000 meters of climbing or a bit over and it's about 70 k's or so but you know you, you go out to the Dandenongs you do a crucifix and that's it like that's, a, that's a solid solid training session we'd never ever heard of someone doing a double so we thought well let's do a triple and yeah so we went and did a, a triple crucifix and the, whatever it was six, six thousand meters and um the next year we did we'd always sort of wanted to do 300 kilometers ride in one day like we hadn't we'd come close a couple of times um so we thought we'll do a 300k ride but rather than do 300ks on the flat we'll also uh, throw in a fair bit of elevation as well so we mapped out a route in the high country and did our 300Ks, but it was with 5,000 metres of vertical as well, just in, in one ride. And so that one was called Three Long, Five High. And it was sort of around the time of the these last couple of epics that I had so many people that were contacting me from all over the world saying, Andy, I have to get in on this next Hell's 500 epic. I don't care what it is. And, you know, I had a guy from New York who wanted to come across and a guy from the UK and there was this guy from France and a few from New Zealand and... I was like, you don't understand. Like, this is just my family handing out bananas and hand-baked cookies on the side of the road. Like, it's not, it's not in the, there's no gantries or anything like that. There's no no fanfare. There's no timing. It's just, just us doing it for fun. Um, and so it was sort of at that time that I realised that, and like I had more than 100 people that had sort of expressed an interest in, in coming on to the next, the next epic. And I've run, you know, dozens and dozens of proper licensed and permanent 
permitted events. And I, I just didn't want to go down that path with this. It was, I wanted to keep it a little bit more sort of underground. And so at that time I realised, okay, well, if this epic, if this annual epic that we do is going to live on, then it really needs to be something that you can pick up and replicate wherever you are in the world. And I played on all these different variations and permutations over the, over the months and, you know, trying to find the right balance of elevation and distance and something that was replicable wherever you are. And I'm of Dutch background, so I always kind of think of that guy sitting in the Netherlands when we're saying, yeah, do, ten, do a ride with 10,000 metres. You know, that's, that's a bit rough for, for uh, you know, for, for someone from Holland or Belgium. Or Singapore, perhaps. for that matter. Or Singapore, or Singapore. <laughs> and I'd, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd grown up, like my favourite type of reading is mountaineering books. I love mountaineering. Just, What's your favourite? I, I uh, of, of books? Oh, yeah, of your I mountaineering books. Like, Sorry to spring that on you, but like I, I'm also, yeah, a big fan of, uh, of big uh, mountaineering books. Well, I'll tell you, my, my most, my, uh, my favourite one at the moment is actually Maxim Chea. Uh, he's, he's a seven summiter, um, but he's just this amazing oh, like adventurer, I guess. And, and the seven summits are just one of his stories. He's kayaked across oceans and he's ridden across countries and all sorts of things. And, and his book is just so inspiring to me because the seven summits, uh, it, it, you know, is, is kind of like what the, what the crux of the book is about, but it just represents such a small part of like a super interesting guy's life. He, he's from Lebanon and he, uh, he just, he just did a, um, an Everesting over there, uh, which was something he, he was interested in, in checking out, uh, which was super cool for me to be able How to chat, to, yeah, chat yeah. to this guy. Sorry to digress there, but Mac Maxim but but yeah, being being a fan of mountaineering and mountaineering stories and uh, and growing up, I suppose yeah, Everest is always that that one that sort of captures people people's imagination, right? Totally, yeah, it, it does, and and it's it's like there's it's big and momentous, and you know you use that as a yardstick for anything big in your in your life, don't you? You know, you, you as soon as you say the name Everest, you know it's the biggest thing that's there. And, I'd actually, I'd heard this, I read this story of uh, a guy, George Mallory, George Mallory Jr. So he's the grandson of the George Mallory, uh, who 20 years prior had done this ride where he'd, he, he's uh, actually mountaineered, summited Mount Everest. And, um, but he's, he also kind of thought, well, I wonder if I can ride the equivalent of height of Mount Everest. And, He's, he's not a, he wasn't at the time like a, a really uh, big cyclist, but, you know, he just, he loved the idea of pushing himself. And so, yeah, he, he went and did this. Uh, he climbed the height of Mount Everest uh, on Melbourne's Mount Donabuang, which is, you know, an hour and a half out to the, to the east of Melbourne. And so that was 20 years prior. And he'd written a story about it a few years, um, you know, quite a few years later. And I read that. And the moment that I read it, I was just like, this is, bonkers you know how could you ever do that and I thought like we're these hill climbing nuts but there was this little part of me that it just it stuck in the back of my brain ever since I, I heard about that and then it all kind of came together I was like okay well hang on we need something that's replicable anywhere in the world and what if you were to you know take your own Everest and and you know climb repeats of whatever it might be it could be a suburban street or it could be a giant iconic mountain like the Stelvio or something like that. But, you know, you each have to pick pick a hill somewhere and climb the height of Mount Everest. And 
I loved it because it was big and audacious and it was, I think at the time, maybe six and a half thousand was the most I've ever done in a day, which is it's a lot of climbing in, in one day. And so the thought of just taking it so far beyond that was really, really intriguing as, as someone who really enjoys the idea of pushing yourself harder and harder. And actually, I talked to, to George Mallory about, about his attempt and he thought he was really supportive of, of the idea and um, also thought it was a bit nuts and thought our attrition rate would be really fine. It, it still is to this day. Like there's, there's a big attrition rate for Everesting. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, I, I took those hundred people that were interested in, in coming along to our next epic and said, okay, I've, I've got the next ride for you, but you have to be sworn to secrecy and, um, so, and explain the concept of, of doing this Everesting and you couldn't sleep and you had to climb the height of Mount Everest and you had to just do repeats of the same hill and it could be anywhere in the world. And for that launch weekend, uh, under the cover of complete secrecy, uh, in the end, there was about 65 who decided to take on this challenge. And I, I knew at the time that based on my experience with, um, with the 10,000 metre climb, that if one of us did an Everesting, it would get a lot of attention. And if three of us did it, it would be massive. And if out of the blue, all of a sudden these popped up on, it, on it, people's Strava feeds, uh, you know, it would be, be really big. And I think in the end there was about 30 or 35 or so that, that completed it and caused a stir it certainly did it was uh there was just coverage everywhere and it, however big i thought the uh the interest would be it was just you know quadruple 10 times the the uh had, had uh you know our our national our national newspaper um got in contact like a yeah uh, the fairfax media media uh, got in contact and they were printing a full page on it you know a few pages in, into the newspaper and all their national papers and the radio on the radio and stuff like that so yeah it was cool it was, where did you do your yours then andy did you did you replicate mallory's route no that's really interesting i, I kind of at, and this is a rule that changed there, there were some rules so we had to have some simple rules that put everything in place and one of one of the, the rules that we actually launched with that that weekend was you had to be the first otherwise it didn't count at all um, so we, we had this spreadsheet going where everyone had selected their, their hill of choice and it was already taken for that weekend. You had to choose something else. And so we all, all went off and onto different, uh, you know, different places. And thankfully that's, a, that's a rule that we, you know, changed after about a week, we realized, okay, well, it's, uh, we want to encourage people to do this, not, not discourage them. But, um, I chose a, a climb that was of real significance to, to me and, um, you know, whenever I was, you know, I was working a, a nine to five at a at, at for for a hotel company, and my escape was my wife would would call me up and say on a Friday afternoon, "Hey, we're going to Mount Buller," and so we'd just chuck all of our camping gear that we had already assembled in our garage, ready to go. We'd race home from work, chuck everything in the back, drive for three hours out there, set up our tents in the darkness, and then go ride Buller a couple of times uh, over the space of a weekend. And so it just had some real significance for me. I love it during winter. I love it during summer. And so for me, it always had to be Mount Buller. Um, but yeah, I was, I was facing a ride of, of nearly 300 kilometers. I think it was 290 or something like that. Uh, higher than anything that I'd ever done before in my life. I just, uh, my daughter was maybe about six months old at that stage, my first daughter. So, um, 
I was, you know, I, I certainly didn't have the training regime that I'd usually like to put in to, to these sorts of events. And it was, it was, I've got to say, it was, I should have been terrified, but you, you guys would know what this, what this is like, but it's just, there's something about going into such an unknown that's just exhilarating and, and exciting. Uh, it, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was really fun going into it. And plus, look, I, I bloody socialised it to 100 people, so there was no way that I could fail in front of that many people. I had to get it done. I was, I was going to bleed from my eyeballs before How I, long did it I take I you, that, that first one? How many, how many laps? So just over 300 kilometres, but... Yeah, 300 kilometres, it's about a 1,000-metre climb. Uh, so I, was, I thought I was looking down the barrel of eight laps. nine laps, and yeah. In all of my haste, I, I, I didn't really check it out properly. And, and I, I sort of, I was maybe a little optimistic with my, with the elevation gain for the laps. And, you know, I didn't know all of, all of the things. We've got a calculator now on, on the Everesting site that will help you work this out. But um, I probably didn't quite check out my own route enough. I was too busy, like, trying to help everyone else with theirs. And so when I reached the top of the first lap, I realised that, I didn't need to do eight laps. I'd need to do nine. And so you can imagine kind of how, um, yeah, how, how that could potentially like really upset you, your mental strategy for the day. But it was whatever it was, two o'clock in the morning at that stage. And I just, I looked at it and I could feel, you know, the start of anxiety and panic riding up. And I just, I made a call right there and there under the stars. I said, right, this doesn't count. Just forget about the first lap just going to roll back down to the bottom and I'm then going to start my eight laps. And this is not something that we're going to deal with. And I just kind of told myself that, right, this is, it's not on the tables. It's not up for discussion. You know how to think about this. And I just got on with it and rode to the bottom and yeah, did, did the other eight laps. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was, it was like, amazing. Like, I think 20, 21 hours or something like that in the end. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and so there would have, there were 30 odd people around the world that did it. How many of them were in, were in Australia? Was it majority Australia or did you? Um... Yeah, it was majority Australia, um, but we had a couple in the UK. There were a few in New Zealand. Uh, George Mallory did another one, um, which was really, really exciting. He did one a few days before in New Zealand and then kept it off Strava um, yeah. for, for a week or so, uh, which is, which is really lovely. Um, the first time yeah, I actually, no, I, I think I heard about it properly was um, a, a good mate of mine, um, Mike Glutzman. He um, he did it in the UK on um, what's the one on the North Downs, uh, the hill, the hill in the North Downs, Box Hill, and he did it on a um, on a single speed. And so he was yeah, like, right. I think he'd attempted it the first time on a single speed and then he didn't have the right gear ratio. So he had to like, um, so he didn't complete, went back, did it, submitted it to be like the first person ever. Uh, this must have been about, I'm not sure what year this was, but it can't have been too long after you'd started, but um, uh, to be the first person to ever submit a, a single speed. And then someone, I think in South Africa, submitted a single speed one like an hour before him. And, and he was just no. like, oh no. <laughs> um but uh but yeah this is the same guy that did like the halt route um alps on a single speed as well which is a he's like an absolute nutbag but um but yeah it's, it's amazing how like people have taken the concept and they're like right how can i make it harder or how can i like tweak it and so the actual um the the format itself has kind of evolved over those last seven years right 
Yeah, that's right. Like I think one thing that's always been really important to me um, in, in anything that I'm, I'm sort of creating, and I, lo- I love creating diff- different events and, and I, I love the idea of sort of this concept of flexibility within a framework. And the idea is if you lay down some simple rules and some simple kind of guiding areas but allow enough flexibility there, then it means that your community can take it in different directions. And because I always think about, you know, like it, I've done, I think, 11 Everestings now and, and, you know, I'm planning another one and I always want to do something different or something significant to me or or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, Mayak is, is a perfect example of that as well, taking this concept into a completely different and, and interesting direction. But, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm most excited about is seeing the stamp that, that people put, put on their own Everestings and, you know, sure, it could be the single speed Everest, the first single speed Everesting, or it could be, I mean, there's brakeless track bike Everestings or, you know, unicycle or a guy who's popped a mono and has monoed an Everesting, like on one wheel the whole way up. But but equally, like, it's just, it's any of these Everestings that are coming through and it'll be the first person to do it in that particular district of the UK and, and they'll claim that or the first you know, female to do it in, in under a certain amount of time in a, in a, in a country or whatever it might be. And I just, I just love the idea that, you know, we, people are able to sort of take and embrace this concept and really make it their own. And, uh, you know, they, they can take it in really interesting and different directions. Yeah. I, I would actually like to know how much, cause the great thing about the, the concept of it captures people's imaginations, but it's also, it's free to do. So the amount of people that have used it as fundraising for charity, like I'd love to, I don't know if you've got any idea how much money has been raised for charities through doing it. I mean, there's someone, but I'm sure it's in the like hundreds of thousands of, yeah, of dollars. Yeah, we, we did some back of coaster math on it. And, and because it's around one in four people will use it uh, as a vehicle to raise money money for a charity or for a cause or raise awareness and again that's something that we could be more proud of and and our back of coast two calculations had us you know it quite easily over a million dollars because you've got to remember there's events like um rebecca rush who is the queen of pain she's uh, one of the most amazing gravel riders in the world uh you know she's got her own event rebecca's private idaho and we collabed on an event last year where um she raised uh, i think one hundred twenty thousand. US um, just from that one event um, and we ran one where we raised money for for Nepalese earthquake victims and I think that was something similar like 120 or 130,000 US so there are some you know big big fundraisers out there Hope for Justice is another one where they those guys raised like significant chunks of uh, chunks of cash but you know it, to, to think that you know someone can go out and raise a thousand dollars for a local hospital or for their kids' school or whatever it might be. It's it's um yeah, it's super exciting. And just just to go back a little bit, Andy, when did you get the sense then? So initially it started off as a as a almost like a private affair, this little network that you built up around the world. When did you start to get an inkling that it was picking up elsewhere? Yeah, it's funny because I think over the seven years, like taking 2020 out of the um, out of the equation, I feel like I've had that moment of oh okay, now it's, it's, it's a thing, right? And I think I've had that moment, you know, so many times where it's like, okay, well, I thought it was getting bigger before, but now this is, you know, when, when Jens Voigt, um, you know, 
one of the most amazing, you know, the hard men of, of cycling when he attempted an Everesting in the snow in Germany uh, a couple of years ago. I was like, oh my God, like Jens Voigt knows about this. And not only that, like that alone would have been enough to, to kind of blow my mind. But, you know, for him to go and do an Everesting as well was, was incredible. Um, I, I think for me, the real moment that it, it, that, that it dropped, that, okay, this is legitimate, like, I really got the sense in 2019 that the term Everesting had entered the common cycling vernacular. It was one of those terms that in a lot of circles, you could sort of say the term Everesting and people would know what you meant. And um, yeah, it was actually, there was uh, Thomas de Ghent was writing uh, like a daily article in some Belgian or Dutch newspaper during the Tour de France, like just talking about what happened during the day. And so I got the got a little Google alert that oh you know, there's an Everesting mention, and so I got my mum to read me this this article in this Dutch newspaper that Thomas de Ghent had written. I'm a big fan of Thomas, and uh, yeah, he was basically saying how oh I was at the front of the peloton and I was rolling next to Richie Port, and Richie was uh, talking about you know where he was planning on doing his Everesting, and I was I was really interested in that because of course you know I was planning on doing Everesting at the end of the season with a couple of people from. Um, from my team and in the background it's just like that's the record needle <laughs> the needle scratch in, in my head just going Whoa, what like what are you talking about so hang on not only does Thomas DeGant know about this concept and, and not only does Richie Port and both of them are independently planning Everestings but um, as, and it's being talked about in the peloton of the Tour de France <laughs> no less but the way that Thomas DeGant wrote about it in the article he up until that point, I really felt that whenever Everesting was getting mentioned, it would be, um, you know, blah, 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 I was doing an Everesting, which is the, you know, the activity where you're climbing the equivalent height of Mount Everest, blah, 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 blah. Whereas in Thomas Degan's article, he, he didn't mention, he just said the word and it was just assumed knowledge that the, the readers would know what an Everesting is. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever that, that yeah, that, that was the moment for me where I felt, okay, this now it feels legit. It's part of the cycling lexicon for sure. It's um uh, and but but I think more than that. I think that um certainly in I mean we've we've covered a lot of trail runners. You talked about that you started your endurance um, uh, enthusiasm and, and career in, uh, in in trail running, and um, and it seems to be really sort of um, taking off on the uh, on the running side as well. Like you mentioned, you've had fourteen and a half thousand people that have completed Everesting. How many have actually done it on? I seem to remember like a year ago there was around there was only around a hundred or so. Or I don't, um, but yeah, it must be in the, it must be quite a few now. In the last twelve months alone, there's been four hundred and thirty-two. Uh, run every single or in 2020 there's 432 so which is phenomenal and I think the thing that's really so, so running is definitely if you ask me like what's the focus of Everesting in in the next 12 months definitely it's the running side of things and I think it's because the interest that I'm seeing in the run community is and the way that the run community is talking about it I saw those same patterns with with uh, cycling all those years ago and it's super exciting and it's just at, just at the, the beginning and, and uh, yeah, I'm super excited to see what happens with Run Everesting. I also, as a, like I said, a shonky trail runner back in the day, I also know that at some point I'm 
going to have to do it. And I haven't run in a long time, but I, I just, and, you know, Scott, you've obviously done both. I, I can't, I've got to collect a few more badges <laughs> in my, in my, uh, in my little, my little um, profile. And I think the running one's the only one that's successful because I'm never planning on doing a double or a triple. That's stupid. Um, so yeah, I think running's probably going to have to be it. Yeah, I mean, there's one request on on my side that if you're going to change the rules at all, we need to make people run <laughs> down as well. I like, I, 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 I always find it's like just going because there is actually there's a big, um, I forget the name of the guy, but there's like a in in one of the ski fields or ski mountains in the US, right, where they will take the gondola on the way down, and it's like quite that's a big right. event. Yeah. I forget the name of it. I'll come back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. Um, so like, well, I think. I think like I, I agree with you, but uh, like, and so I'm always of the opinion that you can make it harder for yourself by doing X, Y, Z. But I think um, you know, early on, the big limiter for running, and I just want to say as well, like the majority of people will run up and run down. Um, but but I think like um, you know, in the beginning, I saw one of the biggest limiters being that the assault on your knees and, and joints and everything as, you, as you're kind of descending down some partic particularly technical and, and tricky uh ascents so like uh you know we differentiate between we call them either shuttled or non-shuttled uh descents and so non-shuttled is is obviously on, on foot and um i think i agree that it's always the more pure of the two but you know the way you've got to think about it is well what can i do that's interesting with the descent, like obviously it opens up a building to be Everested because you can build like run up the stairs and come down the elevator. Yeah. But I want to see someone, you know, rappel down every lap or catch a hang glider down or base jump down. Or I don't know, something like that. Like it'll, it'll happen. And that's, that's the amazing thing about this community because they'll take this concept and go, okay, well, what can I do to just get creative with it and come up with something that, that sort of makes this little patch my own? Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, there's been quite a few, quite a few mountain bike ones as well. Um, what would you say would have has yeah on on the like fourteen and a half thousand or um, which ones have really stand out in your mind as uh, as as being yeah like the most impressive, the most, the, the hardest or yeah. Well, I've done a mountain bike one myself. In fact, I've done three on gravel and dirt now. And, like, they're, they're hard, no doubt. Um, also really enjoyable. The mountain bike one that I did, I was in the rain for, I think, 17 hours. So I was just completely, I was just covered in mud, not even speckles or anything. I just, like, it was a sheen. Um, so mountain biking is hard, but it didn't mean that it wasn't fun. I, I think, like, if I was to say what the most difficult everything is, it's... Everesting Mount Everest itself. Um, and so, like, I, I was really fortunate to be on a, a small team a few years ago where we attempted uh, an Everesting on Mount Everest. So just to explain, on the Tibetan side of Mount Everest, I obviously got Nepal and Tibet. So on the, on the Tibetan side, they've, they've paved the road up to Mount Everest Base Camp. So it's about 5,200, 5,300 metres or so uh, above sea level. And... Uh, in that last kilometre or so, just before you get to base camp, what's usually a fairly low gradient of 1% or 2% the whole way that goes for hundreds of kilometres, it actually finally kicks up. And it by kicks up hardly, it's like 5%, 6% or something like that. But, um, but you're at 5,000 metres and you're in a valley 
just before the uh, manifest base camp on, on the Tibetan side, which means you're facing the catabatic winds, which you know from all your mountaineering uh, book reading that they're the winds that kind of come down, that roll down the mountain. And obviously it's extremely cold as well. And the temperatures and, and, uh, and the weather can change at the drop of a hat. So if that doesn't sell it to you uh, uh, alongside the fact that you're looking at Mount Everest, like you're literally looking on the, on the face of uh, Everest from Mount Everest base camp the entire time. If that doesn't kind of get your juices going for, uh, for, for adventure, then nothing will. And so, yeah, the three of us took off on this incredible adventure and we were really setting off into the unknown because we couldn't find very much at all on endurance activity at high altitude. Um, so we, we were training in in a um, in a uh, what do we call it like an oxygen chamber, and to, to sort of simulate, we had respiration coaches. We did so many different blood tests and all sorts of tests. We we're on all sorts of weird and wacky supplements to get our iron levels up and uh, all, all sorts of things. And we spent months training. I'd trained for this harder than I'd ever trained for anything in my life, as as did the other two on our crew. And we went out and did it, and. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, we, we sort of succumbed to the mountain. For, for myself, it was, I, I got quite serious high altitude sickness. I was having full on out of body experiences and uh, I, I nearly came off over a guardrail on, on one of the descents after a couple of hours of riding. And um, there's, you do, you get a, a pulse oximeter, which basically measures your blood oxygen levels. And, and it's a, a measure of, of, uh, of kind of how healthy you are at that moment, what the oxygen mix in your blood is. So Scott and Rick, yours right now is, should be somewhere around 97, 98, 99%. Uh, and and um, I checked mine and, and basically if it's under 80%, that's really bad. If you're under 70, like you're in hospital kind of thing, it's, it's, it's pretty dire. And mine was at 49%. And uh, so that was definitely, it was time to pull stumps for me. And the other two, the other two um, Shannon and, and Matilda um, went on a, a lot longer and unfortunately they succumbed as well. But the really exciting thing was that um, someone attached to the expedition company that took us there from Cirque Cycling, uh, JJ Zan went and actually did this. He, he Everested Mount Everest uh, the following season because obviously you've got a small window that this is, this is kind of possible. So it took him, there's 177 laps of this particular, you know, one kilometer or how many kilometers segment. It was 420 kilometers of riding and he was riding for 40 hours um, at, at 5,000 meters elevation, which is just, it's insane. It's just so high, like you can't breathe. If I was talking to you right now, I'd be stopping every few words to pause, to, to take just to take a breath of air, just to talk, have a conversation. But you can imagine trying to do an endurance challenge. So by and far, that stands out as, as one of the most hardcore, um, you know, things that, that I've ever heard of. So I, I talked to uh, JJ, like, after his attempt. And um, so I just wanted to get some insight into what it was like. I was obviously stoked for him, having, having kind of gone through all of that training and preparation myself. And... He just said that every single pedal stroke he was aware of it hurt him from the start to the finish. And I said to him, well, 177 laps, like when did you know you had it in the bag? Like 50 from the end, 30 from the end, 20 from the end. And JJ said, Andy, like I've got to tell you, I was on the final lap and I was halfway through and I still wasn't sure whether I was going to finish it or not. 
Uh, but yeah, he did. It was just like so hardcore. I remember so, like, it's reading just, about it favorite. at the time. Yeah, and it was. Um, uh, I didn't realize that you'd actually gone and, and attempted it the prior year, though. Um, but for anyone that's one of the best adventures of my life. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and like they say, it's really prone to getting altitude sickness on the Tibetan side because you drive straight up to the base camp. So there's not that acclimatization where if you're if you're coming right. from the Lukla side and where you're like you're, you'll have a big trek into base camp. So you've like you've got the the trek and you you've got the acclimatization. But um, yeah, just being plonked straight at five thousand meters, five and a half thousand meters, it, it's not it's not good for you. Like yeah. And who would have thought that someone with Dutch blood would struggle with being at high altitude? <laughs> <laughs> but like I would say, like that was that was the hardest. But if if I think about like you know some of the like there's, I mean there's obviously a million stories, fourteen fourteen and a half thousand stories. But um, you know one of one of uh, the writers who started writing with us like very very early on in the piece has just ticked over his hundredth Everesting, John O'Egan, which is incredible so he's he's actually well i should say 101 because yesterday i approved another one of his uh and he's also done two base camps so that's yeah like 103 activities that he's got in in the uh everesting hall of fame but 100 everything wow. incredible and wait, who, who's yeah. next who's next up after that in terms of the number of uh, everything i think it's about 30 or so but there's also base camps that are in the mix of that one um yeah so there's there's a, there's a couple of guys that are sort of around that 20 and 30 so base mark. camp is five thousand um, meters or five and a half is it or, yeah yeah four 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 two four. well that's right yeah. for, for the purposes of everesting we call it uh, it's a half everesting it's a half everesting yeah yeah and yeah. and you mentioned andy that obviously you have to approve these and that, i guess that's like a key part of this but have you have you had to have any difficult conversations with someone who has submitted submitted their data and it just doesn't stack up yeah, it, it, it's it's one of the parts that I, I hate the most because I, I really want to celebrate every single person's you know incredible events and uh, incredible achievements. But yeah, I've, I've had plenty of those tough conversations along the way. And um, look, uh, I don't know, like um, it, it's yeah, it, it's it's tough to have those conversations. But it's also the integrity of the challenge that sort of and when you explain it like that, I've got to say most athletes. Uh, aside from being a bit disappointed or pretty understanding of that. I think like, you know, where there's instances where, you know, some pretty clear rules, like, I mean, there's, there's pretty simple rules to follow. So the less obscure ones, like you shouldn't sleep on the Everesting. If, if it turns out that we've had to knock one back because there's evidence that, there, that there's been a sleep or it's just too big of a gap to kind of explain without that, then I think that's kind of fair enough. But it's the ones where maybe the intention was right and maybe there were the device you know, died or something uh, yeah even with the device dying like you can flip on your phone and we can record two activities there's ways around that but it's a, if for example they've measured the height wrong and they they've thought they've completed an everesting but it turns out they're, they're kind of quite shy um you know it would be a pretty mean bastard to knock someone back for being five meters short or something but if you're like 250 meters or 300 meters short well it's, it's not quite the, the height so we've got to kind of make that ruling and look that that happened to to Lockie Morton last year um so Lockie Morton races for EF uh education first incredible rider um he's doing he's doing a lot of ultra racing at the moment super super amazing guy 
And yeah, he, he did an Everesting and we all thought it was legit and we looked at it and based on the, the uh, data that we, we had through Strava, it all looked fine. But a, um, a, a magazine went and did a deep dive into uh, the segment data and they found out that, um, you know, they did some GPS mapping and found out that the segment data was, was out by a bit. And if it had just been an Everesting, it was probably, like I think it was a couple of hundred metres short, like he'd probably almost, um, you know, be able to go, okay, well, the intentions were pure and he, he could have kept on riding it. But the problem with Lockheed's is he'd also gone on to set an Everesting fastest, fastest record at the time. And obviously we can't let a record stand there uh, if, it, if it's, you know, if it's not a legitimate height. So yeah, we had to say, I had to talk to Lockheed and say, Hey man, I'm so sorry, but the, the like this has happened and the elevation isn't quite right. And we, we just can't accept it. And in one of the coolest moments for me in Everesting history, Lockie Morton took it on the chin because he's a bloody champion and he went out and did it again the following week and, and took another five minutes off the time. And it was obviously hundred percent correct. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was really exciting. <laughs> champion. And it, but- it took Alberto Contador to better his time, <laughs> you know, it took a multiple Tour de France winner to better his time. And, and that all happened in, in 2020. Mm. Yeah, that's right. The, um, the Everesting record fell quite a few times during 2020. In fact, by Everesting record, um, Tobias Lestrel uh, held the record for, for quite a few years, I guess similar to the, um, the the Seven Peaks record that we held. It was one of those, you know, probably wasn't really challenged so that it, it stood for a long time, not to take anything away from what was an incredible ride. Uh, he set a very, very fast time. Uh, but Phil Guyman actually uh, took that off him and uh, so Phil Guyman, uh, he's, he's like a professional, uh, you know, ex-pro ex, um, athlete, but now a professional YouTuber. Uh, he goes around like stealing people's KOMs and everything. And so he set out to, to beat Tobias's record and he did that. And his record lasted, I think, three or four days or something into a, until the National Mountain Bike Champ from the States, Keegan Swenson, went and took that off him. And then it basically just started this chain of, uh, of events because you got to remember last year, there was no racing. There were no official events. There was no, well, at the state, at that stage, there was no Tour de France, no spring classics. They'd all been sort of shuffled to the end of the year. And so all these pro riders are kind of twiddling their thumbs. They've got, you know, training to, training to do, and they've, they've got the ability now to actually go out and have a crack at this, these, these records. And so, yeah, past hands, uh, a dozen times and same with the women's record as well that that changed hands quite a few times yeah because um, emma pooley took it um was that in does. july is she still yeah. holding it or is it or has it been taken again? Still it. that's right yeah. and and amazing amazing like such an incredible I've, ambassador for us i got a funny stories. story about um about emma pooley actually like i did um uh i did the um the alps hort route and she came along as the kind of like celebrity rider to like uh, and chat with him and so on the time trial was up out duez now i was pretty sick I, I i i had like a um I, i'm just i'll preface it with that just so i can save some face but um <laughs> I had a really bad chest infection but um i went off on my one and um and uh so 
I, what is it 14 switchbacks or I forget how many but um I'm like I'm going up and I'm and I hear something behind me and there's there's Emma Pooley running it and running up out to Ez and she ran past me and time trialed I god knows how much quicker um but yeah she smashed me on it when she was running up out to Ez and I was cycling um they, they did actually disqualify her for it because she was supposed to have been on her bike, but um, she still would have been lodged a, a faster time than, than most of the field on uh, on foot. <laughs> Emma's amazing. Like she's she's so inspiring, and she picked a really difficult um, segment in Switzerland, um, like super steep, average grading of thirteen percent, and. Um, we, we like we chatted in, in the lead up to it to, to figure out like basically she was almost at the point where she was going to have to descend the whole way back down just to climb another hundred meters. And given the length of the descent, you know, when you're talking, because the clock's still ticking when you're going downhill yeah. as well. So we we had a good look at the segment and realized that okay, well, if she was to start a bit further down the road, like um, you know, through some other streets she could make up over the space of the day the extra elevation so she wouldn't have to descend down the whole way. So if you look at her activity, it's got this, it's this beautiful climb in Switzerland and then it's got this random extra little bit that she do, does between some shops uh, at the start of every lap just to get those extra, I think it was, she had to get 12 metres extra a lap or I don't know, whatever it was at the time. Um, but yeah, she ended up doing it in uh, 8.53, which is so fast. Amazing. And what's what's the male record right now, Andy? Uh, so it's Sean Gardner, and so it did change uh, hands a couple of times. So it was Alberto Contador, and then I th- oh, shivers. I think I've got this right. Like I said, you know, there's so many, but I, I believe it was uh, Ronan McLaughlin uh, who who set another record and tantalisingly close to to the sub seven. He did it like a seven oh three or something. And I spoke to Ronan and he was pretty sure that he could find some efficiencies. Um, you should definitely, everyone should definitely Google Ronan McLaughlin Everesting and, and have a look at the bike that he was on because he went to town on it. He removed extra gears. He cut off the ends of the handlebars. It was like a weight weenie bike, uh, sort of like you would expect to see in a hill climbing championship. Um, he certainly took all the marginal gains he possibly could to, to set that record. And then uh, a little bit later, Sean Gardner, set the record and also broke seven hours so six hours 59 if you can believe it like i don't know you scott i can't comprehend that no i mean i took 20 hours on on mine yeah. and yeah you just the because you're a normal human being that's why yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it doesn't mind you there i mean yeah with jim Wolseley just uh almost took the uh, did six hours to run 100 kilometers the other day wasn't it, it was six eight or six yeah. ten or something wasn't it but um yeah there are some crazy human beings out there um but it must be so great for you being a fanboy as well of cycling and everything and all of these amazing athletes and they're like calling you up say hey andy i've got this route can you like consulting on you like that must just be so cool for you one of these days, like, you know, in, in year, like maybe when I'm an old grade grandpa sitting on the couch or something, there'll be some point where it will start to sink in a little bit. But I think when you're in the moment, you're just too concerned with the practicalities of it all. So there's, yeah. you know, like we've had incredible coverage uh, over the last couple, couple of, you know, we've just had the second article printed in the Wall Street Journal and, you know, we've been in the New York Times and you know, all, all these kind of cool moments that should just be like, God, but you know, you sort of. I think when you're when you're really in that moment, you know, the athletes you're talking to or the coverage that's coming out, you're just too 
concerned with, okay, well, I still need to talk to this person who's doing an Everesting in, in Mount Macedon, Victoria, and someone wants to know how many reps they've got to do of, of whatever Swain's Lane in the UK. Like you, you too, too sort of can't see the forest for the trees, I think. So yeah. hopefully I'll appreciate that in years to come. <laughs> Speaking of age, what's, what's the youngest and the eldest people who've Everested? Yeah, so the youngest is uh, a young kid by the name of, I'm going to say, I think his name's Tom. Just, I was actually just reading his book. His dad, his dad, and uh, he wrote wrote a book uh, about it. Um, and I think he was, I think he was twelve at the time, or maybe ten. I can't even remember now. And the eldest is like it's. We don't ask for for age on all of them, but generally, if they're quite young or quite old, they'll, they'll tend to put their their age on it. So the eldest, I think, is just younger than eighty at this stage. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you were mentioning the, the last record um, and all the marginal gains, like for, I suppose, a bit of a closing question, but what would be your, um, what would be your tips for anyone planning to do an Everest thing? What would be the, the sort of, you know, top, top five, top 10 things that they should think about when planning, um, planning to do it? Sounds like always putting an extra four or 500 meters at the end. Yeah. Make sure you finish at the top of the summit. Yeah, is actually like a pretty good one. I'm going to have a little safety buffer, like always. I think I'd always put in an extra little bit just in case. But hopefully your um, your listeners don't roll their eyes at, at this suggestion given given the audience. But I've always really been a firm believer back when in my trail running days or any of the, the big events that I've done of chunking it down. Um, I don't know if there's a different terminology that, that you guys use, but if you look at eight eight for it if you're basically looking at the tallest mountain in the world like that's the wrong place you don't want to be looking at the summit you're thinking okay i'm here to tick off a thousand meters and then once you've ticked off a thousand then you're starting to get close to okay well you know like two thousand i'm getting close to a quarter of the way through and once you're a quarter of the way through the step to a third of the challenge completed is really close once you've got a third there you know getting to half is actually like quite a small amount to get to it might only be a couple of laps but basically, once you got halfway, you're, you know, it's a downhill run. So then you're just ticking off every thousand meters or every certain amount of laps. And um, you know, like uh, I love punch lists when when I'm, you know, when I'm working. So I like write out a big list of everything that I'm doing and I get out my highlighter and I cross them off. And there's this feeling of kind of satisfaction and accomplishment. So when I'm doing my Everestings, I try to approach it like a punch list. So. I'll have like maybe, you know, I'll, I'll break it down into fractions, obviously break it down into uh, reps, I'll break it down to, into thousand meter increments. And it basically means that every couple of laps you're crossing off some next goal. And it feels like, okay, cool. Well, I'm not worried about getting to halfway, but like in two laps time, I've hit 3000 meters and, you know, whatever it might be, getting these little micro goals all the way along. I, I think that that helps so much because, Everesting really is, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you felt, felt the same, Scott, but it's definitely like as much mental challenges as it is physical and different people have different, you know, weightings of it. But it's it's definitely a big part of it's in your head, particularly when you get to that 7,000-metre death zone. Like things get pretty ugly there for, for a couple of laps. Yeah, I mean, the repetitiveness of it definitely requires a certain amount of mental fortitude to to push on through i i think also just training the route as well is so it's so simple but just um but yeah doing doing the reps doing the reps on the actual doing the laps um doing the circuits on the actual route helps you get in that mental space because you know how you feel at certain points and um 
for me, I, I think I trained up on where both of them. I've only done twice. I've only done two. So just on foot and on bike. And I think for both of them, I trained up to roughly two thirds. I think half for the on foot and, um, and then two thirds on the bike. So then once you've got to that point, you know, you've like cracked, you've got over the crux of it. And it's, um, it's a bit easier than that. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, one of the things that we introduced at the end of, at the start of last year was this base camp uh, that I talked about, our Everesting base camp. So half Everesting, four, four, two, four meters. And that is a really great training goal because, you know, it, it just, you, you're definitely going to be spending lots of hours either on the trail as a runner or on the bike or on your virtual trainer. And you're really going to like, you do four and a half thousand meters of climbing, you're going to get a pretty good insight into what it's like to, to be there, you know, for hours and, and climbing with fatigue in the legs. And I know, like, I, I think it's a great simulation. So an everything base camp is definitely, definitely a recommendation. Yeah, I've got uh, a couple of those to, to lodge now, actually. I haven't actually put those up on the Everesting. I need to get that badge, actually. I might have to, uh, I might have to send it through after. Yeah, actually. we do. Yeah, we do accept uh, retroactive claims. And actually, Scott, just before uh, this call, having a look at your Mount Faber uh, Everesting, and you've, you've, if you go back into the Hall of Fame, you'll see that you've got an extra badge now. You've, you've picked up a significant badge because uh, we've got this thing called the 4S. Um, so we ask you to do four separate Everestings, one of which, so the 4S is uh, significant, so it needs to be like an iconic climb. And, and Mount Faber definitely is an iconic climb in, in the Singapore climbing community. Uh, one of them has to be short. And by short, we mean it has to be less than 200 kilometres, including the descent. So it means the average gradient's kind of kick up That's around the 10% or so. It's getting pretty, pretty steep. Um, soil is the other, is, is the third S. So it needs to be a gravel everything or a soil everything. So obviously either on um, trails that you're running or mountain bike or gravel bike, whatever it might be, uh, and suburban. So we like the idea of taking the biggest mountain in the world and putting it into a suburban, you know, normal street. There's something really kind of exciting about that. So sort of in, in an enclosed urban area. Um, yeah, in fact, the first time I did 10,000 metres in one ride was a suburban Everesting just uh, a, a suburb across from where I live. And I don't know, it was one of the most enjoyable Everestings that I've done really bizarrely. Like you're looking, looking at, you know, you see people's lives over the space of, well, that one took me about, you know, just under 20 hours or so. And you see, you see everything happening, like people mowing lawns and fixing their yards and you get to know the neighbours. And in fact, one guy toward the top of the climb had been watching from the morning and he was coming out and checking up, up on me and, offered me drinks during the day and, and stuff like that. And I was getting right towards the last two laps and I was on my second last lap. And as I was coming up, he came out in his dressing gown. It was like about 11 o'clock at night or something. Oh, how are you going, Andy? Like you're getting close. I'm like, I've got one more lap to go. He's like, that's amazing. And then he ran in his dressing gown <laughs> next to me for the last half of the final lap. And I don't know about you, Scott, but the thing that I find with Everestings is it's a real, there's no, I mean, there's no ticker tape parade. There's no um, big fireworks or anything like that. When you finish, you're usually pretty buggered. If you can manage to get a beer down, that's that's pretty good. Um, but there's generally not a lot of fanfare, certainly not the ones that I've done. So I got a hug from this random guy. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. We celebrated together <laughs> at the end of at the end of my suburban Everesting. It was, it was quite quite awesome. <laughs> I think that's that's a really interesting point, Andy. Like I, I think one of the reasons that Everesting became I mean 2020 was kind of 
it wasn't really anyone else's year, was it? It was kind of your year, but um, it's not just that people could do it in their backyard. It was 2020 was for a lot of people about finding or appreciating what they had on their doorstep, right? And, and everything's a way that people have been able to kind of create meaning around something that they're doing. And, and I guess, you know, Scott will never look at Mount Faber in the same way again, having done that kind of ride. And it's amazing really yeah. that that's, that everything's created that for, for all these hills and mountains around the world. I think it's it's been important for people mentally as well in 2020. Uh, like and, and obviously 2021 is looking like similar sort of uh, you know situations in a lot of places around the world. You know, in Melbourne we we had one of the toughest and longest lockdowns in the world. We were, we were in lockdown for seven months on and off, and um, you know, everything certainly isn't isn't there to to cure any of the the world's um, big crises or anything like that but what it can do is provide you a little bit of uh, distraction from from all the craziness that's, that's going on in your lives and um, it was really lovely to see that that helped so many people that were that were you know stuck at home or in quarantine in a hotel or something like that and they were able to just for those however many hours that it took them they could just think switch off and think about nothing but just hurting themselves for, for a little bit and um, yeah, to, to think that we helped provide a little bit of distraction in a really shitty year was, was something we're pretty happy about. Yeah, everything from professional athletes to, as you say, people quarantining in in hotels. Um, it's definitely um, it's definitely given opportunity for people to push themselves. And uh, yeah, it's been a been a cracking year for for you and the and the everything team in the Hell's Five Hundred. And um, yeah, we we appreciate you coming on to to share a bit more about it, Andy. It's kind of like you yeah it's it's so i think it's really good for people to to hear more of the story uh, behind it and um i was kind of thinking it was it just been like a drunken chat down the pub that all of a sudden just turned up until you went out and rode the next day but yeah to hear how it sort of evolved from hell's fire 500 up to that first event with 60 people in in multiple countries and now to have done it 100 countries around the around the world sorry was it nine there's 100 is 101 including uh in, including Zwift but um yeah something that I, yeah you write as you write in the sort of mill of it but I think you'll look yeah it's got to be something you're extremely extremely proud of to have um yeah to to have come up with with along with the team and uh and yeah we're certainly uh, we've loved following people and I'm just like, I'm just waiting to see what ones are going to be next. Like whether we're going to, I mean, whether it's going to be like a triple Everesting on, on, um, uh, or, uh, I'm, it's probably done already. Actually. I'm probably, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so last year we saw over 9,000, nearly 9,100 new Everestings completed in, in 2020. And of that, the highest elevation that any one person did was, 35,422 metres, but but that was only one of four that were above 30,000. 30,000 metres in one ride. So we are, oh. I need to explain the rule a little bit. So first of all, let's just think about this. Double Everesting is bonkers. Like it's crazy. You complete an Everesting. It's ridiculous. You're going to for normal people, 15 to 20 hours. Uh, on the bike or, or on foot or whatever it might be. So to then think about how you feel at the end and then go and do another one of those is insane. So we do allow uh, a two-hour sleep break that you can have either in between the Everestings or basically once you've completed that first one, you've got a two-hour allotment. You could break it up like a lot of ultra uh, athletes will break that up into smaller chunks of 30 minutes or whatever it might be. 
And those ultra athletes can just keep on going and going and going. And so we've had double Everestings and they've been around for quite a while. We've had triple Everestings and we've even had quadruple Everestings. Yeah, it's insane. So the, the, the really exciting thing about Everesting is there, there's no upper limit. And it's really exciting. And every time I think that the boundary has been pushed in one particular area, whether it's the speed of it or, you know, the distance covered or the elevation covered or whatever it might be, invariably it gets, it gets pushed in another direction again. Uh, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah, and, and some of the questions that we'd had beforehand to share to to ask of you were just around whether like a relay format and, and a team format for everything. Have you ever considered that to be, um, yeah, to to be able to put it in in some way? Yeah, it's it's something that we we're, we're definitely thinking about, and it's it's something that you know we've been thinking about for for a couple of years as well. And I think with everything, it's really important that the integrity of the challenge is, is number one. And it, it is generally like a solo challenge. And, and the idea of base camp was something, like I said, that we introduced last year because we feel it provides a great stepping stone and hopefully opens people's eyes to see, you know, okay, well, if I can achieve that, then I can potentially push on to an everything. And a lot of people do. But also we also acknowledge that, um, you know, that there's a lot of people that, to complete a base camp is the, the toughest thing they'll, they'll do. And that's incredible. And we should be celebrating that. Um, but yeah, I do, I do love the idea of, um, of people, um, you know, of kind of, I guess, um, being as inclusive as possible wherever possible. So to find a way to do that without lowering the bar of the challenges is the, the clever way to do it. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Excellent. Well, look, Andy, we really appreciate you coming and, and joining us and sharing the story. Um, good luck for your, you said you've got another one planned, did you as well? Have you, uh, have you got your 11th in the, in the diary yet? Yeah, look, I've always got one or two ticking away in my mind. I feel, so we're, we're about to make a bit of a rule um, tweak with mountain bike everything. So um, one of the rules with everything is it has to be repeats of the same same section, which means going up and down. And the only exception to that, if it's not practical to, like if it's a one-way road, for example, you have to come down. Swain's Lane in the UK is a great example of that. So yeah, Fabe is the same as well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. With mountain biking, it gets really tricky. And like I said, I've, I've done three on a mountain bike and of that one was on single trail. And it was really, really difficult to find an appropriate trail that number one, you could ride safely all day without people fanging down the other direction. Something that gave you enough elevation gain, but then something that was a one-way climb so you could get a, a, a different and interesting descent down as well. I think, you know, I, I whittled it down to like two or three options in, in all of Victoria. So one of the tweaks we're going to make with mountain biking is that you can descend via different means as long as you're not getting kinetic gain on that descent. Um, so with that rule change, I'm pretty keen to do it on the mountain bike everything. So I'll be going up the same hill, but you can descend down a, a separate, like a different... Uh, maybe full on to like a road, a road to come back down and then ride, ride up the gravel. Yeah, you might ride up a fire trail, for example, and then yeah. come down on some cool single track. And, you know, it's not adding anything. In fact, it's probably making the, the challenge harder. But um, I think that'll open up the appeal to mountain biking. Because like I said, you know, actually finding an appropriate segment is really, really difficult for mountain biking. Yeah, it's definitely one on uh, on, on my... It's a badge that I need to attain before, um, yeah, um, in, in the next couple of years. But, um, but yeah, once again, Andy, thank you so much for... For um, I, I mean, and you do this obviously, like uh, the sort of commercial aspect of it. Obviously, if you if you what if you 
doing everything you can buy the amazing gear the cycling gear and everything that you've got um but i mean i i do say uh, yeah is there anything else that like i suppose that people can go and support because you put so much time love and energy into this and it feels like it's a, a thankless at times but yeah how can people sort of pay their respects and pay their dues Honestly, this, this might sound really funny, but like I, I feed off the stoke of each one of those Everest things. And, and it's the reason why, you know, pretty much I've worked on it every day for the last seven and a half years, like minus a handful of days. And it's, it's like I said, you know, each one of those 14 and a half thousand people to date that, are, that have entered their details in, it just, it's amazing. You see the photos, you see the stoke on their face. You know, quite often it's the hardest thing they've done on a bike or on foot or in their life or whatever it might be and or they've raised money for charity or whatever it is so like i'm just feeding off the stoke and and you know the kit is great like it, it um you know it's great kit and it helps um sort of identify our crew and the, you know the wonderful thing is you're out in that kit and people go will ask you like where you did your everesting and it's quite recognizable but really honestly like just being able to feed off the stoke is is the best fuel that you could ever ask for yeah, mate, that's that's awesome. Amazing, thank you, Andy. Very cool. Well, look, mate. Well, um, yeah, we look forward to catching up again in future. But yeah, thanks for making the time. It's been awesome. Brilliant. Looking forward to it. Catch you soon, guys. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hello, Mr. Rick Stockfish. How are you, sir? Good, Scott. How you doing? Very well. What a what a sound bloke uh, Mr Andy Van Bergen is. Yeah, so humble considering what he's managed to uh, put together over the last few years. Yeah, I, I just, um, I love that he, he's, you know, just chatting to him at the end and just saying, look, I mean, what can, what can we do? How can we support? And he's like, look, I'm just, uh, what did he, I'm in it for the Stokes. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. It sounds quite American, not Aussie, but, you know, just you can tell how much he feeds off like every weekend at the end of the weekend getting like pinged um uh, of a new uh of a new everesting going up there and um and yeah he just uh it, it feeds him yeah it really was the perfect year last year for for challenges like that wasn't it and no surprise it took off but yeah as, as you said the fact that you've got you know pro cyclists and legends of the sport doing it and yeah amazing yeah and you did say it's gonna yeah, has all these people message him, and it's it's like when he eventually steps back from it, he'll be able to realise how cool it was that all of his like heroes have taken on his challenge, and just hearing about them chatting about it in the peloton in uh, is just yeah, is uh, is crazy. But hopefully, listening to that will inspire a few more people to go out and uh, and and lodge a few Everestings in your respective countries across Asia. Um, there's a few on the map. We've got like Vietnam, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, Malaysia. But yeah, there's. Um, I think we need to. Um, we need to get. I'm not sure if Japan actually. I've talked to Tomo about it before. We should. I should check on the site. But well, um, we can. Uh, we'll talk about Hong Kong four trails in a minute. But I know Solomon did. He Everested Lantau no, Peak, didn't he? He didn't actually. No, he did over. So when he was doing for the accumulative um, for the um, Asia Trail Girls um, elevation competition, he did the equivalent of over that 10 days of like four Everesting or something crazy like that but he didn't do it in one go it was only Nikki Hand that actually did an Everesting as part of it she was in the same team as Solomon but he didn't actually do an Everesting in that one he might have done it since yeah I thought I thought he'd done 
I thought he had. I thought I'd seen him do. Anyway, well, we're getting him on next week, so um, so we can ask him in person because yeah, we're going to be um, we're going to be getting a few of the Hong Kong Four Trails um, challenges. Before we get into that, though, um, yeah, since we last called up, there's been. I mean, obviously, we um, uh, we had Chris Vandenberg on, um, Vanderheld on the uh, on the podcast last time, and during that week, though, we had the Asia Trail Masters Seven Missions. Um, which actually like culminated it had like a pretty interesting uh, interesting finish. There was a a phenomenal um, a phenomenal team um, which had um, Sherpa in there as well as um, Ryan Whelan. Ryan Whelan. It was the uh, Jeff Campbell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I think Sherpa came out on the uh, on the final day of it, and because uh, there was an elevation sort of you got extra points to get an elevation, and yeah. he he ran like a. A, a three-hour marathon with uh with 1500 meters elevation um and uh yeah it was a, a, a amazing uh amazing finish from sherpa uh, kind of a a bit of a divisive figure uh, a sherpa but uh, like an amazing uh amazing athlete and previous guest on the podcast um uh, but yeah, it was a it was a good challenge, and there was a few other like Vanya here in Singapore. She ran a three hour marathon uh, as well, and um, I think she finished um, the top female um, in the in the whole competition. But yeah, they did a great job. We got huge participation. I caught up with Chris, and he was saying they had teams in Australia, and you know, a bit like with the Asia Trail girls, that you know these these virtual events have really taken off and and seem to have kind of caught everyone's imagination around Asia, which is great. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, the winning team wasn't it was um, with um, yeah Brian McFlynn, Jeff Campbell, um, Sherpa, and uh, Brian McFlynn was the other one, and then Ryan Williams as said, but um, but yeah, cool. We've um, we've got a few more races actually that are coming up. Actually, a lot of physical um, of physical races. Yeah, so um, so Jerry, another former podcast guest at Red Dot, they're putting on um, what are they calling it, Run Wild, I think. Yeah. Um, it's, it's going to be a, a 5, 10 and 21k event in quite an interesting part of Singapore, actually, up in the, the northwest corner, um, right up on the edge of the island um, at, in an old scout camp. Um, I was up there the other day, actually. It's pretty remote. It's Singapore's last unpaved road, I think, heads right alongside it. So talking to Jerry, I mean, that the, the road itself will be, will be part of the course, but they've got what she says is a really interesting trail through the scout camp. Um, and I think just the idea that people will be able to get together in person and race. I think they're going to do. They're going to go off in waves, um, with with you know with, with decent time gaps in between them to allow for social distancing. But yeah, just just the the thought of a a, a real world race again is uh, is is both strange and and really exciting. Yeah. What what's the date of it? It's twenty twenty eighth of February, I think. Okay. Okay. So yeah, coming up um, coming up pretty soon. So. Yeah, look forward to um, to attending there. Um, I mean, I probably will run it, but I just um, I'm uh, yeah I'm my completely out of uh, any any kind of peak fitness. Um, but yeah, I have actually I've been out. There's been the Shiok 200 Ben Swee's um, kind of virtual event. He set a route and then gave everyone the month of January to go out and um, and knock it off. And um, like some unbelievable runs. Like I can't even 200 kilometers. It's far, but then you think, oh, Singapore's flat. But just the the heat and the humidity that you have to deal with in Singapore, going for that distance is is crazy. But last weekend, oh no, it was the weekend before last, went out and support um, uh, Roman Grillo, uh, who's knocked off. We mentioned knocked off a few FKTs in uh, in Singapore, and is uh, yeah one of the top top ultra runners here. But he um, 
he smashed the the previous best time, which I think was thirty three hours, um, and um, and yeah, did it in in thirty one hours, and uh, just an impressive impressive run from him. Um, and yeah, just this past weekend, uh, I think we all, there was a uh, uh, Veronique um, um, Babo who. Um, we got on to speak about her. She's still going ahead with her sort of running the African continent, but she went out. She didn't quite finish the route, but she she ran 200 kilometers. Um, and then also Ned Phillips, who did the... Uh, the um, Backyard the, Ultra. Yeah, yeah, the Backyard Ultra in Singapore. And I think he did 24 yards. He did the virtual one only in the year. He finished this weekend as well in, in 37 hours. Um, but yeah, I think there was a total of... There was a team that... Uh, four people that did it in 43 hours um yeah i think in, in total there's probably about uh 12 to 14 people that did it but hats off to ben swee for um for putting together these crazy routes i mean he's he's done a he's got a few routes with the monster one in um in uh in singapore and um yeah he's uh it's good to get those challenges to get people to push themselves. Yeah, speaking of backyards, I saw they, that Laz put up the the entrant list for um, for Bigs this year, which looks pretty impressive. And Abby from Singapore's on the list, obviously. Will Haywood's there. Um, I think they've even confirmed the the two Belgian guys who did what do they do seventy four yards or something in the, in the virtual one. Um, so if people are able to travel for that and and that full field manages to get there, that's going to be quite something to watch. Yeah, that'd be um, that'd be definitely be good to follow. Um, oh, we can't not mention Stingray's um, FKT this uh, this past weekend. So yeah, he he originally came out a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. So the, 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 we we talked before, and, and and you know Ryan Blair's North Face Adventure Team kind of seem to be you know going after every record they can in Hong Kong, and we, we you know um, Ho Chung, we we said you said uh, FKT of the year last year for the McElhose. Stone had done FKT on the Wilson and, and then the Hong Kong Trail, another of the four iconic trails. Stingray had done, he'd done the unsupported FKT, yeah. which was what, three, three hours, 47. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't the fastest because there was a supported one, which was part of the, the green race, which is supported because there were checkpoints along there. People could pick up water, but um, yeah, so 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 he'd gone back and, and he managed to knock. I mean, a full twenty something minutes off his 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 previous time, and yeah, fifteen plus minutes off the record. So he's got the outright uh, the outright FKT, and it does get a bit confusing when all these the, the different versions of the FKTs and the fact that you can do the trails, you know, in two directions and so on. But you know, by any measure, that three. 326 is going to stand for a long time, I'd have thought. Yeah, I think the distance was like 44k. I think it's like it's around 45, 46k, which, yeah, I mean, there's a crazy amount of elevation on Hong Kong Island as well. Just uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal run. So yeah, well done, uh, well done, Stingray, and um, and yeah, I we've been um, had no races really to to follow, but we have a. Uh, the Hong Kong Four Trails coming up in uh, over Chinese New Year in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, well, weekend after next, um, and uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to be able to follow this. And uh, I think that just the the lack of any uh, any kind of um, ultra running to be able to follow online or endurance sports to follow online, I think there's going to be all all uh, all eyes are going to be on Hong Kong over over Chinese New Year weekend. Yeah, and I mean the, the fact that the the concept's not you know it's not a race. People are out there by themselves. Sort of lends itself to this 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 age of 
social distancing and so on. And, and I know Andre's put a lot of work into how to make sure it's secure and can go ahead. Um, but yeah, there's there's people going into that with some pretty big ambitions, I think. Yeah, so there's going to be 18 participants and there, I mean, as you mentioned, Andre's put some really sort of tight measures in place to ensure that it sticks within all the guidelines in Hong Kong and even goes beyond. Um, and so we'll, we've we've got Andre coming on uh, next week just before the event along with, um, uh, we, we're aiming to get Stone, Solomon and also Sarah, the, th- the three S's, uh, Sarah Pemberton, um, to talk about... Um, how they've been preparing for it and what their expectations are. So um, I'm, uh, I, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to, to following that one. But yeah, as you say, there's um, the sub 50 has been talked about for quite a few years now. And I mean, we can speculate about who will potentially um, be able to, to conquer it, but it's domestic race this year. So only Hong Kong residents are going to be, uh, are going to be racing. So we're going to have, None of the other finishers or survivors from internationally are able to get in. Um, but with that, I mean, there's always a much higher finishing and surviving rate from residents. They get to be able to, tra- uh, to train on the route. And I mean, in my eyes, there's probably four people, I'd guess, that are potentially with um, some sub 50 aspirations. Um, Son and Stone, who we're, getting, uh, who we're getting on, but Tom Robertshaw as well with the current fastest time of 53 hours <clears throat> he's uh he very much goes under the radar um in terms of his you know he's not you know see him on strava or any uh, and you know he doesn't wear a watch when he's out training but um but be sure that he has been training i actually no i did see uh, that he, he i I, he, I did see him on strava recently that he just did um the um needle hill 10 times which is uh I think it's like 26k and it was um yeah like I think something ridiculous like 4000 meter elevation or something and it's um so yeah he has definitely been um uh he's definitely been training training hard for it but then we've also got Nikki Han who's um the only female to have uh, have finished it as well 50 hours might be a little bit um um a bit of a stretch but certainly I think she's uh she's got an opportunity to beat her previous fastest time which i think was around 58 hours um but yeah it's going to be an exciting one to follow yeah i'm looking forward to hearing from them as well before we before before it all starts good stuff well um yeah looking um let's uh catch up again next week so we'll have um yeah um i hope you enjoyed the chat with uh with andy and um and yeah we'll we'll um look out for next week with uh to chat all about the the hong kong four trails like the truthful story if they ever ask Stop the complaining cause things ain't that bad